Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Today we're going to be taking a look at Chapter 20 of S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History. As you remember, last time I was doing this, we were talking about Luther in his childhood and how he, uh, he grew up, how he became a monk, uh, how he was converted, and how he gradually moved towards becoming the reformer in the church. And now we're going to get stuck into Luther as the reformer, Luther in his interactions with the Roman Catholic Church, and how he was so mightily used by God in bringing about the Reformation in Germany. Uh, Houghton spends quite some time on Luther, so we'll dwell upon him for quite uh, quite a bit. In fact, um, uh, in just uh, terms of lineage, he is the uh, the most dwelt upon of the reformers, and in one sense, rightly so. Uh, Luther really did light the uh, the spark, and many of the men who later became Calvinists were initially converted under Luther's ministry and held to Lutheran views before they became uh, became Calvinists. So you probably would not have had a Reformation in Geneva without a Reformation, first of all, in Wittenberg. But before we get started, let's pray briefly. God, our gracious Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for the heroes that you've raised up in the past. We know that the only true hero in human history, the only perfect man, was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we thank you for those men who were stalwart in the defense of the truth. Luther, having discovered justification by faith alone, was willing to spend his entire life defending it and to, uh, uh, to throw down everything uh, that he had in the defense of uh, the gospel truth. Help us to have a heart where we are zealous for the truth, uh, a pastoral heart where we desire to see others come to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be winsome proponents for the gospel and help us, O oh Lord, to be um, educated in what has come to pass in the past because we know that all of history is your history of redemption, Lord. And keep us, um, keep us hopeful, uh, as the saying uh, goes, that we would not forget that uh, you ordain everything that comes to pass and that uh, the day is coming when uh, surely our Lord and Savior will return and all things will be put right once for all. In the meantime, help us to study. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. Luther and the Church, chapter 20 of S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History. Although Luther was now a professor at the University of Wittenberg, he still lived in a monastery. In the year 1510, he was commissioned to go to Rome in the interests of the Augustinian order. He was delighted with his mission, for up to this time, he held the conviction that the Roman Catholic Church was the Church, that the Pope was the Holy Vicar of Christ upon earth, and that Rome, the Eternal City, was the supreme seat of holiness. But he was miserably disappointed. The nearer he approached the holy city, the more wickedness he observed on every hand. And while in Rome, he heard about the wicked deeds of popes and other high dignitaries. In addition to this experience, Luther discovered everywhere on his journey, from monastery to monastery, that the priests were deplorably ignorant and given to the grossest superstitions, many of them even being unbelievers and blasphemers. He spent four weeks in Rome. Julius II, the Pope at the time, was scarcely any more, anything more than a scheming statesman, greedy of gain, and willing to achieve his ends by fair means or foul. He was engaged in a war with the French. Luther went hither and thither, seeking blessing. I remember, he says, that when I went to Rome, I ran about like a madman to all the churches, all the convents, all the places of note of every kind. I implicitly believed every tale about all of them that imposture had invented. I said a dozen masses, and I almost regretted that my father and mother were not dead, so that I might have availed myself of this opportunity to draw their souls out of purgatory by a dozen or more masses and other good works uh, of a similar description. 
We did these things then, knowing no better. It is the Pope's interest to encourage all such lies. All accounts of Luther mention an event which occurred on what is termed Pilate's staircase, being supposedly the staircase on which Pilate stood when Jesus was brought before him for trial. It was claimed that it had been miraculously brought from Jerusalem to Rome, and that whoever climbed it on his bare knees would receive remission of sins. Luther certainly climbed the staircase, but accounts as to what happened vary. One account, written by Paul Luther, the reformer's youngest son, tells us that as his father repeated his prayers on the staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came into his mind, the just shall live by faith, which caused him to realize the worthlessness of the stair climbing. Another account found in a sermon of Luther says, At Rome, I wish to liberate my grandfather from purgatory and went up the staircase of Pilate, saying, uh, or rather praying, a pater noster, that's the Our Father, pater noster, uh, on each step. For I was convinced that he who prayed thus could redeem his soul. But when I came to the top step, the thoughts kept coming to me. Who knows whether this is true? The visit to Rome was a landmark in Luther's life. On seeing Rome from a distance as he reached the city from Germany, he had fallen upon his knees, exclaiming, Hail, holy Rome, thrice holy for the blood of martyrs shed here. But at the end of his stay, he learned to see the city in another light. He was prepared to say, If there is a hell... Rome is built over it. Later, he said, I would not have missed seeing Rome for 10,000 florins. I should have felt always an uneasy doubt whether I was not, after all, doing injustice to the Pope. As it is, I am quite satisfied on that point. Returning to Wittenberg, Luther soon received the degree of Doctor of Divinity, and in 1515, he began to preach in the parish church. This brought him into close touch with the people who liked to hear Dr. Luther because he began to unfold Christian truth as no other priest or preacher had ever done in their hearing. But all this was only preliminary. God in his wise counsel was so guiding persons and circumstances that Luther's conscience soon forced him to raise a strong protest against the errors and deceitful tactics of the church. It happened in the following way. The popes had decided that St. Peter's Cathedral at Rome should be rebuilt. The enormous expense was to be met by contributions from all uh, areas where the church held sway, and with a view to promoting the inflow of money to Rome. Special indulgences were to be sold. Tetzel, a monk from Leipzig, was one of those who touted, uh, toured rather, the German states to effect their sale, and he had a graduate scale of payments based upon social rank and sins committed. Some Germans, it appeared, were even prepared to buy an indulgence to secure exemption from years in purgatory for sins they had not yet committed at the time of per uh, purchase. People were also told that they could make payments which would cover, uh, deliver their loved ones who had died from their purgatorial torments. The moment the money tinkles in my box, said Tetzel, the moment the soul springs up out of purgatory. Actually, it was, uh, it's a rhyme in the German. It's uh, something along the lines of the moment the money in the coffer clinks, the soul from purgatory to heaven springs. Uh, it's a much uh, cleaner rhyme in the German. But um, the, the thing to remember here, and do keep this in mind, dear ones, is the fact that um, the Roman Catholic Church has never disavowed indulgences. So the things, the very things that Luther was complaining about uh, are still within the uh, catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Many Protestants miss the fact or don't realize that um, the Roman Catholic Church cannot change its essential doctrines. Once something is promulgated as something to be believed by the faithful, because they believe they're speaking ex cathedra, that is from the chair of Peter, they can't go back and change it. So indulgences are still part of the Catholic faith. Purgatory is still part of the Catholic faith. Every Christian who is not a great saint, who has enough uh, works of their own to enter into heaven, 
will spend, according to the Roman Catholic Church, thousands of years in purgatory, working off uh, or having the, in the fires of purgatory, having the stains of venial sins uh, purged from them so that they might be truly uh, clean when they enter into heaven. So what the Pope was offering back then was something that's not commonly offered these days. It wasn't just time off in purgatory. You can uh, take 10,000 years off of your time in purgatory or your loved one's time in purgatory. It was what they call a plenary indulgence for all sins ever committed. Uh, this was a huge money maker because you wouldn't have to buy other indulgences later on. It was uh, one, one indulgence fits all. So, uh, and many um, people misunderstood. They felt that uh, essentially they were buying a license to sin. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church would have said, no, no, this, this covers only venal sins, those sins that don't destroy your, uh, your soul and send you to hell. Uh, you still need the sacraments in order to spring you out of um, uh, the mortal sins that, uh, that kill your soul. So, for instance, if you're guilty of adultery, glutter, uh, gluttony, gluttery, gluttony, murder, etc., you're going to need more than just an indulgence to, uh, to save you, the Roman Catholic Church would have said. But uh, Christianity... Roman Catholicism at the time was essentially mostly folk superstition. They didn't understand it, and uh, you know, systematic theology was uh, was not something that was widespread at the time. But then again, is systematic theology widespread by the average American? I, I hear a lot of folk superstition bumper sticker sayings that have no place in the Bible and, and grievous errors from people who've just heard from uh, word of faith preachers here in the United States. So perhaps times don't really change that much. Anyway, back to Luther's time. Another matter, too, was involved. Albert, an ambitious young pre, uh, prince of the House of Hohenzollern, uh, had secured appointment to two archbishoprics and a bishopric, but at a price. He had paid a huge sum of money to the Pope and an equivalent amount in fees at the three inauguration ceremonies. He had borrowed the money from the financial house of Fugger, a house in close touch with Rome, and by arrangement with Rome, he was allowed to engage Tetzel, as chief agent for the sale of indulgences so that he might repay the Fugers. Luther's anger was unbounded. He preached vehemently against Tetzel and his ecclesiastical wares, but soon decided to, make, to take more vigorous action, for men in general had no conscience against purchasing indulgences, which guaranteed the remission of purgatorial pains. Luther, therefore, wrote 95 theses, tersely stating the evils of indulgences, and on the 31st of October, 1517, at the hour of noon, he nailed them to the door of the church, uh, castle church at Wittenberg. This was the beginning of the Reformation. October 31st is its birthday. The following day was All Saints Day when multitudes flocked to the church. These theses attracted great public attention. They were read, copied, printed, and distributed all over the Germany. Uh, all over Germany. And as soon as on wings carried over all Europe. Many rejoiced in Luther's boldness and hoped that good would come of it. Just uh, one quick note, um, the castle church door at uh, Wittenberg, it wasn't, Luther wasn't doing anything unusual by nailing his theses there. Uh, the church door functioned as, as essentially a, a bulletin board in the way that social media does today. It was a place to post notices and so on. Uh, and he was hoping to engage other scholars in debate. He wanted to debate these issues, hoping that if they were debated and discussed, the errors that were associated with indulgences might be realized. Uh, he pointed out many common sense things, things that should you know, have occurred to everybody. For instance, if the Pope has the ability 
to empty purgatory for money, okay, by paying the Pope, you can get time off in purgatory and go directly to heaven, then why on earth doesn't the Pope, out of Christian love, empty purgatory immediately and send everybody to heaven? Why is it associated with money? He would, um, he would make those points and, and so on. But anyway, moving back to the text, as for the Pope, he first treated the matter of these theses lightly, but he quickly changed his mind when he found out how serious was the threat to his authority and to the doctrine of the church. He demanded that Luther should recant and summoned him to appear in Rome. He also demanded that Frederick the Wise should deliver up this child of the devil to the papal legate. In response, Frederick suggested that the Pope should uh, send a delegate before whom Luther might appear and plead his cause. And to this, the Pope readily agreed. He sent Cardinal Cajetan to Germany, and Luther duly appeared before him. The Cardinal treated the reformer courteously and demanded the retraction of his errors. Uh, Luther replied that what the Cardinal termed his errors were not errors, but truths of God's word, and that he could and would do nothing against his conscience. Cajetan dismissed him with the words, Recant, or do not come into my presence again. He wanted to have nothing more to do with the rebellious monk with his deep sunken eyes and strange thoughts in his soul. Secretly, he gave orders that Luther must be taken captive, but Luther received a timely warning and escaped his hands. It was not long before the Pope made another attempt to demonstrate the power of Rome, but as he now realized, flies are more easily caught with molasses than with vinegar. And so he sent his agent, a friendly, good-natured man named Karl von Miltitz, to Frederick the Wise to present to him a golden rose, a costly gift which conveyed to its recipient fatherly love and special goodwill. The divine fragrance of this flower was to permeate the heart of Frederick and to lead him to do what the Pope wanted, namely to withdraw support from Luther and to induce the reformer to bow to his papal will. At first, it appeared as if this policy would succeed. Luther apologized for his vehemence and undertook to abstain from further disputing if his opponents also remained silent. Miltitz then kissed Luther and returned to his master. Luther soon made it clear, however, that he was not prepared to depart from his fundamental doctrinal principles, and the rift between him and the Pope grew steadily wider as months went by. Another papal agent reported to Rome that the reformer was a very stubborn and dangerous heretic, and ultimately the Pope excommunicated him. A bull, that is Latin bulla, uh, that comes from a seal. So, for instance, hey, this is just an excursus, but uh, in... Uh, in ancient Israel, um, all of the officials of the king used to use what were called bulle to seal their uh, letters. They were stone seals that you pressed into the wax uh, that you were sealing your scroll with. And then you sent it on. They found uh, countless uh, bulle from uh, officials in the courts of, uh, of various kings like Hezekiah and so on. And uh, some with names that are drawn directly from the Bible. So... Um, those bulla proved the truth of the, uh, the gospel, but the bulla that the Pope uh, issued excommunicating Luther proved that the gospel had been lost by the church, uh, by an irony. Anyway, um, dated 15th June 1520 was issued from Rome condemning the reformer and ordering the burning of his writings. Luther, on his part, formally renounced the papacy by burning a copy of the papal bull in the presence of a great crowd among whom were students and professors. As he cast the bull into the flames, he said, As thou, that is the Pope, hast vexed the Holy One of the Lord Christ, may eternal fire vex thee. Soon afterwards, in his writings, he denounced the Pope as Antichrist. The Reformation was well and truly underway. One point that sometimes American Christians, because we, um, we live in a time of the separation of church and state, miss, or maybe two points, two related points, uh, and they're simply this. 
circumstances had to be right, not only um, in terms of religion, but in terms of politics for the Reformation to take place. Luther needed a protector. He needed Frederick the Wise, uh, uh, the elector, in order to protect him from the power of the church and the Holy Roman Emperor who served the church. He also needed uh, for there to be popular discontent amongst the people with the uh, obvious uh, malpractice of the Roman church. The Germans at the point that Luther came up, for instance, were sick to death of sending all of their money, as they put it, over the mountains, that is the Alps, into Italy to fill the, uh, the Pope's coffers. Uh, they saw, in many cases, the church for what it wa wanted to become, a giant business, uh, essentially the money lenders in the outer court, um, writ large in the world. Uh, they were taking the, the temple of the Lord and, and abusing it, using it for, uh, for bringing in money. Uh, so they saw the, the sinfulness of the Roman Catholic Church, and they longed for reform. And so you had uh, a political groundswell within the German states, and indeed in, in other places for Germany that was ready for reformation. The Lord had prepared the ground politically and religiously for the reformation to take place. If that preparation doesn't take place, then the reformation tends to, tends to collapse, no matter how zealous the reformer was. That was the problem that had occurred in the past. Uh, the, the, the circumstances were not yet ready. Uh, the time had not fully come for reformation, and so prior reformers... Uh, were not quite as successful as Luther. But we're going to see also how other things providentially came uh, in line to produce a long-lasting reformation that we benefit from to this present day.